0: My condition of employment was that I got a tea towel and a Geocron.
1: You drive a hard bargain. (laughs) Normally I think people just write a number on a piece of paper and push it across the table. But that tea towel thing, man, I tell you what, that's serious.
2: Today on the show, coffee and pastry. We have a caffeine-heavy chat with Single O Coffee buyer Wendy DeYoung and the team behind Melbourne's Tivoli Road Bakery. Michael and Pippa James call into the office. From today, you can also visit our pop-up Christmas boutique. I'll have all the tasty details on that later in the show. I'm Maggie Scardifield, and you're listening to Gourmet Traveler's Set Menu. First up, Pat Nurse and Wendy DeYoung.
1: Cool jobs. Some of us have them, some of them don't. One of the people who has a really fantastically cool job is Wendy DeYoung. Wendy is the head of coffee for Single O. Single O is a Sydney-based Um, coffee brand that's one of the most respected players in the the coffee space in Australia and and actually I guess increasingly worldwide. Wendy how did you find yourself with this amazing sounding title?
0: (laughs) I guess like a lot of people uh, I got into coffee in college I was a barista.
1: What were you studying?
0: I was studying American Sign Language.
1: Can you do some American Sign Language for us here on the radio?
0: Yes I'm doing it now.
1: Oh my goodness that's incredible and and that was in the u s
0: that was in the u s yeah I started uh, making coffee as a barista in Seattle. you know Starbucks had just a few stores at that point. My roommate was one of the managers for the main store, and she would come back with equipment, espresso machines, little home home things, and we would try those out in the kitchen. Um, I was really into making it right and what that meant to me was making it look good
1: what was a good coffee to version 1.0 wendy coffee person
0: it was layered and then <laughs> you had to that if you were really really good your your foam would just be like so foamy right <laughs> so foamy you you'd be able to just like take a spoon and just plop it down into a big like 12 ounce paper takeaway cup you know and that was like you're a hot barista
1: and then things changed. You you started paying attention to the way the coffee tasted.
0: Yeah. I started working for a retail company in San Francisco area. And um, I was managing cafes there and, um, it, you know, just really noticing a lot of differences between the, di- the individual cafes. Um, and I just decided to start working more closely with our roaster and trying to figure out, what I needed to learn to be able to train people better um, and what I needed to learn to be able to influence the kind of coffee we were serving to our clients. And that, and that was really what started me down the, the big fall in coffee, um, going, uh, spending time with coffee importers, uh, learning to cup, learning to evaluate coffee professionally, not do I like it or don't like it, but what is the quality, what is present, how intense and what's it worth? I made friends with Dion and Emma, the owners of O. Was looking for a little bit of sunshine and came out here five years ago. So I've been with Singalow for five years. What and was the
1: pitch from them? God. Uh, come to Sydney. Drink coffee. Buy coffee. It'll be fun.
0: Yeah. So I, w- I was working in Papua New Guinea a lot at that time. Um, and so they just said, hey, why don't you stop by and visit us sometime? They had, they had visited uh, in Seattle where I was living and... So I, on the way back from one of my trips uh, in Papua New Guinea, I came to Sydney, spent some time with them, um, really fell in love with the Australian coffee culture. And my condition of employment was that uh, I got a tea towel. They had these really cool tea towels at the time, uh, and a Geochron, which is an amazing clock. If you come by the lab sometime, you can, you can take a look.
1: You drive a hard bargain. Yeah. <laughs> normally, normally, I think people just write a number on a piece of paper and push it across the table. But that tea towel thing, man, yeah, I tell you what, detail. that's serious. Yeah. What was so interesting about Australian coffee culture? I mean, you, you've lived and worked in Seattle and San Francisco, which are not exactly you know, cities that know nothing about coffee.
0: The way that the coffee tasted, and that, that's what was so inspiring to me, is that I could tell that customers weren't going to just take a mediocre coffee. And so that was really the spark that made me think it might be really fun to buy coffee for these coffee drinkers.
1: So a general coffee drinking public that is demanding.
0: Is demanding, absolutely.
1: What's your feeling? How is it that Australia has become a, a home to a you know, general population of people who care about what their coffee tastes and looks like.
0: In a really simplistic way, I think that there was uh, a lot of the immigrant culture here came from coffee drinking backgrounds, and that's the same with, with so San which, Francisco. Which countries Italy.
1: Italy, yeah. Yeah. So we have this immigrant population that normalizes the idea of drinking coffee and, and drinking good coffee. Yep. That happens in lots of countries, though.
0: Yeah.
1: What do you think, took Australia to the next level?
0: I think for me, being from the outside, is I just really notice that people have a lot more interest in the provenance of their products. I mean, I see it in the So dining, where the
1: beans come from?
0: Where they come from. Um, and I think that uh, people are willing to wait a little longer and pay a little more for quality. I think that people really, uh, really want to have something that is good they want it to be good and they know what good is and I think for me like that's that's the part that's so so fun and so fascinating you know I buy coffees for the Australian market that I wouldn't have bought for the American market
1: what might that be give me an example I mean a coffee that is unusual or a coffee that's particularly intense or
0: uh, both of those things I mean when I when I first moved here I, I was um, importing coffees that were um, what seemed to me now to be really appropriate to the American palate, kind of the way we drink coffee, which is more um, automatic brewers. We don't, in specialty, es- espresso is important, but, it, but filter is just right there with it.
1: So when you say in specialty, you mean in the specialty coffee scene, the, the really pointy end of the business? Yes,
0: exactly. Um, and the pointy end of the business here in Australia is still 95% espresso. Filter is still something that people are playing with a little bit, but it, it isn't something that customers go to without maybe a little gentle nudge. A
1: hand sell, as they say in the wine trade.
0: Okay, yeah. And so the coffees that I was buying were more appropriate to filter filter style preparation. Um,
1: which, is, which is what in terms of flavor?
0: Yeah, fruitier flavors, higher acidity. Um, when I started really understanding the Australian palate, I was looking for coffees that had had fruit but a different kind of fruit. I was looking for more stewed fruit, plums, chocolates.
1: If we were to look for a common or garden cup of coffee that is served in a cafe in Australia, I think it's, it's, um, is it going to be a flat white? I mean statistically yeah, speaking, it's going to be a flat white, which yeah. is which is what. Break it down for me in in coffee speak.
0: Um a flat white is a shot of espresso with finely textured steamed milk poured poured into it Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of fun and art in the way you combine the milk with the coffee to make sure that when the customer takes a sip of it it's gonna be a coffee forward drink not a milk forward drink and that's how you pour it that's why latte art is kind of important
1: how does that work so that that layering that that milk flour ruffle yeah positions the coffee for the palate for the the person drinking the coffee it
0: does Wow if you look if you have a well-made coffee delivered to you with nice latte art what you'll notice is that it has all the way around the outside is coffee coffee that hasn't really been had too much milk run through it so what? so the first taste that you get is delicious coffee and then the milk kind of flows up under the cup but but it's really important that that coffee layer is intact around the rim of the cup.
1: How do you achieve that as a barista? Just the the careful folding of the milk and the coffee, or um,
0: just practice? Yeah, good good training practice. Um, it's kind of it's one of those things um, that people like to say once once you learn how to steam and pour milk correctly, you'll never forget. It's impossible to unlearn. Um, but. Making a great shot of espresso is something you have to work at every day.
1: Well, let's say you're a great barista and you've got that milk nailed. What's your job? What are the key things that you're doing that separates your good coffee making from less good coffee making?
0: Um, great customer service, obviously. Of course, of course. Yeah, Making everybody happy that you're there. Um,
1: no barista attitude. Thanks very much. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's, it's kind of important. Uh, makes coffee taste sweeter, for sure, when people are sweet. There are so many variables, and that's the thing about making espresso in particular. Is every single thing is a a variable, and um, you know, if we just start with the coffee that you have in the bag, and you open that bag, um, that coffee is going to change throughout the day. So those beans. So those beans will change. If you got a delivery of ten kilos, that's in that same delivery the first bag you use is going to behave differently than the 10th bag you use if you use it over a couple of days.
1: How many coffees you're serving as well at your particular cafe? Like I hear yeah. that it's, you know, you don't want to be the first customer at a cafe because the machine or possibly the barista isn't warmed up. Is that <laughs> is that right?
0: Um, that can be true. I mean, I think for all, the specialty players they've been there already for a while they'll bang and out a few coffees to get yeah, things warmed they're, up they're dialing in and they're, that machine is, is pretty good to go probably
1: dialing in is a piece of barista slang I hear yeah. or, or barista jargon I suppose what does that mean
0: so that means that um, just the variables that we were talking about. That means that you need to understand sort of where you're going to work in, in within those variables on that day. So, Wendy's doing
1: some American Sign Language as she's using that phrase. <laughs> it looks like I'm she's shaping back a basketball. <laughs> uh,
0: you need to um, evaluate your coffee and your grind setting. Um, the, really grind in in a perfect world, the barista doesn't change anything but the grinder so the coffee
1: will move through a difference of freshness over the course of the day that's right. it's lifespan in that once the bag is open because it's a living product that's right or an organic
0: product right so the idea is to minimize all variables except the grind size so you want to use the same dose um, have the same yield which is the amount of uh, espresso or drinkable product that you produce you want to tamp at the same level of pressure.
1: Tamping is the...
0: Is, uh, yeah, when you take that... Um, I don't even know what it looks like. It looks like a tamper. When,
1: it looks like a tamper, folks. Uh,
0: you uh, The thing that you use to, to compress the ground coffee into the portafilter basket.
1: Like if it's too fine a grind, the coffee will release, what, too much flavor or too much stuff or...
0: It'll increase your water contact time.
1: It'll increase your water contact time. So
0: you're really trying to manage the amount of time that water is in contact with the ground coffee. Yeah. And you do that through uh, your grind size.
1: And you have to do that as a barista by taste and feel, right? Like there are certain guidelines you can follow, of course, but with all these variables you are describing, ultimately a good barista will be varying that grind throughout the day.
0: Yeah. And they'll take notes throughout the day as well. So Ooh. so you've got notes for yourself. And if somebody's going to come relieve you, they kind of need to look and see how you've progressed through the day. Coffee is such a strong flavor mm. that that just changing the tiniest little thing can really, uh, really change the end result.
1: What's your margin for error there? You know, will five seconds make the difference between a good coffee and a less good five coffee? Five seconds
0: is huge. Five seconds
1: is huge, yeah. ladies and gentlemen.
0: yeah. Yeah, we're talking about... Um, very few seconds, very few different uh, grams yield.
1: So that intense look on the barista's face while they're making that morning (laughs) coffee is not them catching their reflection in the shiny, shiny machine. They are really working for for that 350 to 450.
0: Yeah, they are. Absolutely.
1: What does a good coffee look like to you? Let's say there's two cafes next door to each other. Yeah. How do you do the triage on those two cafes to figure out where you're going to place your order?
0: The very first thing is what's important to this, to this uh, owner. What's important to this cafe, and you can you can tell a lot by what's the first thing you see when you walk in. Um, is the equipment really clean? Is, are, are there not a whole bunch of coffee beans in the grinder hopper? You know, you want to see a little bit in there. If it's a super banging cafe, you'll be in line anyway, so you'll, you'll have an idea that it's, it's busy and it's okay to have that much coffee.
1: But generally in, you don't want to see too much in you the don't hopper? Really,
0: no, you want to – coffee kind of needs to be protected and it's best in, left in its, its bucket or its bag.
1: Wendy DeYoung, it's been fantastic talking to you today. Where will your next coffee be and what will it be?
0: I will go back to the lab. Um, we ha- I have ten. Back to the lab. <laughs> I have uh, ten coffees to evaluate. These were identified as the best coffees that were produced in Kenya this year. Uh, so I get to go cup those coffees this afternoon.
1: That's a hell of a cup of coffee.
0: It's yeah. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Head of coffee, Wendy Young from Single O. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. You're
2: listening to Gourmet Traveller's Set Menu. Lemon curd filled donuts, chocolate and waddle cedar clairs and flaky pain au chocolat. And then there's the bread. I'm talking about Melbourne's Tivoli Road Bakery. It's a local institution and its owner Michael James is one of the most gifted bakers in the country. In town to launch their new cookbook, we sat down to talk with Michael and his wife Pippa to discuss their sweet success story.
3: So welcome, Michael and Pippa James, to the Gourmet Traveller podcast, and congratulations on your beautiful new cookbook. Thank you. Thank you very much. It is gleaming at me from the desk here, and one of the things that stands out is the note at the top that says, recipes and notes from a chef who chose baking. So Michael, I wanted you to take us back Mm. to you starting out as a chef, because that line suggests that becoming a baker wasn't always in the plan and it was something that perhaps took you by surprise
4: yeah that's right so i, I started off way back in 96 uh i guess i got into cooking uh, through my dad who kind of got me a job in london in a big five-star hotel and i was just a little country boy moving up to the big city it was it took me a long time to adjust but i, I when i i got into cooking and then eventually i was always helping on the pastry section after work or because they always finished after the kitchen and bread just kind of grew on me more and more of the bacon side of things so
3: and what did you find challenging about moving to london as a country boy
4: <laughs> a aggressive i guess the chefs up there it's a it was a boys club you know that's and you're a country boy a bit wet behind the ears it was a it was quite intimidating so you're just uh you know you're on your own i was with my family until i was 18 i went straight up to london and get teased a lot because your accent because you're from cornwall and like my accent was quite thick back then so
5: it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So
4: um, I got a lot of stick for a while, but you stick it through and you just work hard and then just you know, try to prove them that you know, we can do it as well. Yeah. Yep. Boys from the country. Yeah.
3: And you would have met Pippa at around this time. Pippa, what were your first impressions of Michael? Uh, I really, I clearly
5: remember f- the first time that we met and being just really struck by him and just wanting to get to know him, really. Yeah. <laughs> and did, could you spot his talent? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we certainly used to cook for each other when we first started dating and always had beautiful food and he was always full of ideas of things that he wanted to cook and things that he wanted to do when he had his own place and even way back then we were 21. So do you remember some of the first things he cooked for you? When we first started cooking for each other, I remember putting on a lot of weight. There was a lot of a lot of desserts, a lot of cream, <laughs> yeah, a lot of, a lot of Yeah, a lot of butter. <laughs> yeah. But no specific dishes. No specific dishes, okay. no. I
4: remember the first dish you cooked was a set risotto. Yeah, for I remember that. A yeah. friend of ours. We went to your house yeah. apartment. So it's yeah.
3: interesting the plan always was that you would have your own bakery?
5: No, that evolved because we – well, Michael was cooking and I was working in restaurants front of house in – The UK, we lived in Edinburgh and then went back to London Mm. and slowly Michael got more into baking and actually when we moved to Sydney, we moved to Sydney in 2004 and Michael started working at Burke Street Bakery, which had not been open very long and really got the bug. Yeah, Um, that was
4: my first baking job. Yeah. Yeah. It was an awesome place. It was small. We did everything. We did breads, croissant sausage rolls, pies. And creatively, did you
3: contribute to Bourke Street Bakery? Uh, Yeah, in
4: the early days, yeah, it was, everyone was all contributing and putting their thoughts into improving the product all the time. And so
3: did Moveda take you to Melbourne or how did you end up
5: down there? That was my job actually, took us to Melbourne. I got a job uh, at View de Monde and that's why we moved down there. Yeah, Yeah, Michael started working at Moveda. That was your first job in Melbourne, wasn't it. it?
4: It's called Baker di Chirico for oh, that's right, a, about yeah. a year. Sourdough Bakery in um, St Kilda. I did that for a year, night shifts. A friend of mine offered me a job at uh, Movida as like, head baker, pastry chef for the group. Uh, Movida Aki, which opened up a year after we arrived in Melbourne. So I took on that, that job. And that moved into Movida Bakery as a, to supply the whole group, like a separate kind of operation.
3: Mm, so yeah. just a little bit of a backstory. Movida Bakery opens to yeah. to supply those restaurants and yeah. it exists very successfully for 15 months 15 months yeah. and then and you then guys they, take it over they
5: offered us the opportunity to buy it and we figured out very quickly that we were never going to be able to do it as simply as we could in that opportunity so we, we grabbed it
3: and so it wasn't something that you were planning towards or working towards opening your own bakery it just kind of happened just,
4: yeah pretty much yeah just happened and we sort of give it a a crack here. Yeah.
3: I
5: think you had always talked about having your own place, but it wasn't something that we had sort of set up as a goal and said, by this time we want to have, and we hadn't really been looking at sites or... it just sort of happened we were very very lucky <laughs> Right. Mm. yeah
3: and so you both work together obviously you're married obviously that's really can be really challenging I imagine yes what <laughs> getting some nods also very rewarding very rewarding yeah. what yep. is each other's greatest strength in the business I think we have
5: very complementary skills and a clear delineation of who does what so we don't we don't tend to step on each other's toes too much um, because the stuff that Michael can do, I can't, and the stuff that I do, he doesn't want to. But Pippa does um, everything y- apart from baking. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> so <laughs> is baking and not baking, yeah. yeah. <laughs> very much, yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> so um, like baking and there's, like, a huge amount of invoicing in front of house, organising, packaging, <laughs> websites, books. Yeah, it's a lot. Bags.
5: Yeah. Yeah, so so I think it just kind of works quite well. Um, mm. We definitely can fall into the trap of becoming all absorbed in it. You know, we have to be really um, disciplined to say, okay, no more work talk, putting the phone away, um, no more emails. But we just try and be conscious of that. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
3: Is there a moment you remember where you feel like you realised that the business had become a big success, like everybody knew who you were and what you were doing was exciting people outside of melbourne and yeah, yeah. i think
4: for me last it was probably last year the melbourne food and wine festival we had chad robertson from tartine bakery in san francisco he visited so and when he posted pictures about our bakery like the level of interest went up a lot so emails about stagiares and people just generally interested in our bakery from around the world so yeah. i mean that was kind of when it felt like were kinda of on a world stage I guess or mm. got noticed. Yeah. There have been a few
5: yeah. a few things. I mean, the first year was extremely hard and a big lesson yeah. to me in the power of a brand. Mm. Um, you know, people didn't want to know us because we weren't Movita mm. when yeah. we first opened and that was uh, I yeah, I just had never really I just kind of thought you yeah, would do what we do and we keep doing it well and, and that is that was our approach and then eventually mm. it paid off but it was Pretty confronting at that time, um, but the first Easter that we were open, Michael sent his hot cross buns to the Age and the Herald Sun to for judging in their annual hot cross bun article. And um, in both papers, they were judged the best hot cross bun in Melbourne. And that was a big thing. Mm. That was yeah. that really yeah. felt like that's what helped us to survive the first year, mm. and and getting to a year felt like a massive milestone we actually had a party when we (laughs) we (laughs) open for a year because we were just so relieved to you know still be viable after a year yeah um and yeah and as and then in the last couple of years there have been things like chad coming and um you know dan lapard's been very supportive of us as well and that's been amazing beautiful
3: yeah i was reading the section on bread and i do want to talk about bread Mm. and you did some experiments Mm. When you're going through the process of writing the book, which I thought was really interesting, where you used a whole different you know a whole heap of different kinds of flowers yeah. for your starter, and you chose a really basic brand of flour that most people might pick up from yeah. the supermarket shelf to start the process of making bread. And you found that it was became odorless yeah like it didn't create a good starter it was an interesting experiment in working with great ingredients and working with something we might pick up off the shelf not always having access to great ingredients and the huge difference it makes
4: yeah that it was it was a big eye-opener because like after so i mixed the normal organic or biodynamic flour and that fermented after a day or two. but this this other flour took i think four to five days and it turned black and it was odorless and Smelt Turning like black, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, it it's kind sound of like a good black thing. spots and oxidizing. Mm. It. it, was disgusting. So and yeah, it took a lot more time. It was obviously not wasn't alive because the, the organic flour's got lots of good good um it's got the bran and the germ and lots of oils and bacteria and yeast on it. It was alive and fresh and tasty. It was the other one was just just like So you didn't bleach. I assume you didn't
3: take it any further.
5: No, well just, no, know, we didn't no. yeah, we
4: we just wanted to compare the, compare yeah. them here. Yeah.
3: Even when
5: you open the packet of flour, it just yeah, smelt yeah. of nothing. Yeah. Smelt mm. of paper bag. Extreme, yeah. Pretty much. What
3: should good flour smell like?
4: The aroma of wheat, wheat mm. um, kind of nutty, fresh. You'll be able to smell it. Like, I guess it's like, I don't know, Wheat Bix or something. You get that? Yeah, mm. that it, there, there is, yeah. A, yeah it's aroma.
5: a grainy, wheaty, sort of wholesome, Yeah. Um, very savoury kind of aroma mm. that you don't get in a lot of... You know, flour that sits on a shelf, that yeah. it, that is highly refined and sits on a shelf for months
3: and months and months. You just don't get that. And a very indulgent gourmet traveller-related question. Mm-hmm. What was it like to see your creation, the plum galettes, appear on the cover of a magazine? Oh, that
5: was so exciting and we yeah. didn't know it was happening. Oh. So Did you walk into the supermarket and no, see No, actually, issue? our neighbours, um, there's a catering company that are our oh, yeah. immediate neighbours and they posted something on instagram saying so proud of our neighbours having their gl-. and we had no idea it was coming it was just so exciting it was amazing yeah. Yeah. well thank you guys so
3: much for coming and having a chat to us thank you, for thank,
5: having you. Us. thank you
4: thank you very much
2: and to finish the show i am here with caroline ball who is one half of sorry thanks i love you they are two amazingly thoughtful boutiques in sydney Uh, where I tend to head straight for all when I am looking for a perfect gift for someone. Caroline, nice to see you. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Um, You're in today because we have, of course, opened our Christmas boutique. Um, Two shops in Sydney this year. We've doubled it, we've really upped the ante. Um, What can you tell me about this year's Christmas pop-up? Well, this year's pop-up
6: is really exciting. So the main focus for the gourmet traveller, sorry, thanks, I love you, Christmas boutique is on food drink and all things Christmas. Good timing for it. <laughs> yeah so a lot of delicious pantry produce but also some special products that have been nominated by Gourmet travelers award-winning chefs and sommeliers. So there's some amazing pieces in the lineup.
2: Of course so it comes straight off the back of our Gourmet Traveller Restaurant Awards. We have called on some of the chefs including you know our restaurant of the year chef Jock Frillo. He's yes. got some very special knives for us and some really amazing Barossa winemakers that he's excited about. And we've also <laughs> We've got some bar gear from our Bar of the Year, Bar Rochford, yes. uh, in Canberra. We've got Danielle Alvarez and her favourite honey and her favourite olive oil and some linen from yes. the restaurant. That's right. as and, well. and Caitlin Reese as well, also at Fred's. Yes, Samelia, who has nominated her favourite glassware, which I think I have my eye on actually for Christmas. Yes, the champagne glasses. Mom, thank you. And <laughs> <laughs> um, what about the shop? Like how would you describe the in-store experience?
6: We work really hard to create a special experience for people who come into the shop. So it's all about um, touching and tasting and trying things out. So um, visitors to the store can expect to maybe taste some tea when they walk in the door. Um, there's going to be some honeybees on some of the days in the store, creating some honeycomb for people to, to see. Wait, actual bees Actual in live, the store? live bees, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fun. Um, yeah, as I said, we do these... Inst- install yoga classes after hours as well so we try and use our spaces differently and we try and bring the range to life in really unique ways so Uh, every day there'll be something different people don't really know what to expect some of the stuff will publish some of it will be a bit of a surprise oh yeah actually
2: the (laughs) i know the gourmet team is heading down to do a christmas extravaganza which i'm very excited about we're making champagne jelly i believe Mm, and curing salmon and lisa featherby and liz elton our staffers are going to be helping everyone style their christmas table that's going to be amazing um, yeah, that one's going
6: to be held in our store in the Rocks, which is a really big, beautiful space right by the harbour, next to the MCA. It's the perfect location for something like that. Too easy. Yeah. Well,
2: I want to take the opportunity talking to a professional <laughs> gift giver <laughs> about what we can expect from this store, but also what I can buy for my mum, my boss, my neighbour, my weird uncle. Um, tell me, okay, Chris Kringle, what what will
6: we get at the shop? I think. J-friend honey is excellent. It's some chunky honeycomb in smooth honey. It's a really delicious gift and something you can just sleep in the stocking. It's a good one. Awesome.
2: <laughs> There's lots of stocking stuffers. We like that. Chocolate and things as well. <laughs> um, what about present for the brother-in-law? Mm, what are you I thinking? I
6: think you can't go wrong with a bit of booze for the brother-in-law, especially if you don't know them well. Mm-hmm. So I would say Four Pillars Bloody Shiraz Gin, excellent Ooh, yes. to sample on the day as well.
2: Oh, nice. Mm. Um, what about best present to send
6: overseas? Ooh, I think if you're being practical, we should think about um weight and size and mm-hmm. toe and lines linen, which is actually on the tables at Fred's, is a really beautiful lightweight gift. Awesome. Um,
2: so has that been a chef's recommendation as well?
6: Yes, that came from Danielle as well. So Toe and Line are just launching in the next few weeks, so it's one of the first products um to hit the shelves in Sydney.
2: Awesome. And what about for the weird uncle? Ooh. Everyone has a weird uncle, let's be real <laughs>
6: <laughs> um, It depends how much you love the weird uncle <laughs> um, I think if you really love the weird uncle the Dog boy <laughs> knives are amazing These are um, favoured by Jock Zonfilo at Arana Yes, um, of course He spotted these, they're actually um, cheese knives But he's repurposed them into amazing steak knives for the restaurant And they're wow. made from really amazing recycled materials and timber Um, So for the crazy weird uncle that you need to keep happy, I'd go for that.
2: That's what you want. You want (laughs) definitely an award-winning chef like Jocks on Frillo telling you what knives you need over Christmas. (laughs) I'm so okay with that recommendation. (laughs) Um, Well, I think, I mean, with Christmas lunch approaching, lots Mm. of people are maybe going to neighbours' houses or friends or new partners. What can we bring with us?
6: I am a big fan of Eat Me Chutney's. Um, Christmas ho 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 chutney It's oh, okay. is um, made from rescued fruit and vegetables um, obviously you can crack the jar open on the day. It's delicious,
2: I have a jar on my desk, it tastes <laughs> like a mince pie in a jar. Yeah that's a cracker, especially for people you don't know so well. Awesome. Um, and what about dropping hints? What are you going to be asking for? Mm, where to start? I have to say I've already put a
6: few things aside. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite excited about some of the recipe, book, recipe books that we've yeah, got actually. Um, we've some got some really ha- great titles from Hardy Grant and Murdoch.
2: Hardy Grant and Murdoch, yes. I've got my eye on Lennox Hasty's new cookbook. Yes. Definitely. I've always
6: wanted the Bourke Street Bakery cookbook. Now is a good time for that.
2: Absolutely. Yep.
6: Um, there's a lot that I want in there. I'd I should be dropping hints right now.
2: (laughs) Well, look, it is open now and it's open until Christmas Eve. So everyone, please get in there. Um, If you're not in Sydney, don't fret. You can shop the entire range on Gourmet well, through Gourmet Traveller. But also if you head to sorrythanksiloveyou.com forward slash Gourmet Traveller, everything is there to browse through. So happy shopping. Caroline, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. See you at the shop. Bye. That's it for the show today. Make sure you pick up a copy of our Christmas issue, which is packed with clever, entertaining ideas. It's on sale now. And if you're on the lookout for the perfect Christmas gift, make sure you swing by our Christmas boutique in Sydney. Or if you're not in Sydney, you can shop the entire range at sorrythanksiloveyou.com forward slash Gourmet Traveller. Thanks for listening.